Psalm 146, this is the word of God. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princesses, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and we're continuing our teaching series this morning on the book of Psalms. We've been discovering that one of the key ways that God's people mature is by praying their feelings, that we learn to respond well to life emotionally by bringing the things that we feel before the Lord, before who he is, before what he's doing in this earth. And as we do that, he reorients us so that we respond well emotively to the life around us. Now, our focus this morning is on developing optimism. From moving from someone who's consumed with what's wrong with this world to someone who has a positive outlook on life, on becoming someone who lives with a sense of hope. And that's hard to do. It's really easy in this world to go dark, to be bitter, to be depressed, to be morose, to be unengaged in life. It's easy to look around, see all the problems in this world, and respond by going dark. Now, it's always been the case. It's especially that way now. You hear contradictory claims out in the larger world about what's wrong with our world at this moment. You hear claims about who's to blame, these ideas of what we need to do to fix this mess, of how we can get people back to work, how we can keep people safe. You listen to all of this and you start to realize nobody really knows what to do. Nobody really understands how long this is going to take. This period of time feels so utterly unique to us, like something we've never experienced before, like there is no playbook for this. You hear that, you see all of these people scrambling to try to figure out what to do, and it's very tempting to just go into despair, to go dark. I want us to look at the psalmist's world for a moment, because you realize it's not really all that different. It was also a mess. People, verse seven, were oppressed. They're hungry, they're wrongly imprisoned. Verse eight, they suffered physically, they were blind. They suffered psychologically, they were bowed down. Verse nine, there were people who were on the margins of society. The sojourner, the widow, the fatherless. These were people who literally in that society were days away from starvation. Read through that Psalm, you realize the Psalmist lived in a very, very dark world. It's a lot more dark than what most of you and I have experienced in our lifetimes. And yet the psalmist himself is not dark. His response to seeing all of that ugliness is to say, praise the Lord. 
not for the ugliness. He's not despairing. He's hopeful. He sees that darkness. He's not praising the Lord for the darkness. It's because he's found something else that actually gives him hope. He sees a reality that's bigger than the present struggle. And that reality is so strong, it's going to help him as he works through this struggle. It gives him hope. Psalmist does not live in a fantasy world. He's not pretending that things are better than they are. He's a realist. But he's the kind of realist that won't drag you down. He's the kind of realist that you want to be around because he sees something beyond the darkness, something that is so much more real, so much more solid, so hope-filled, that he thinks the only reasonable response is to say, praise the Lord, there's something great here. And you realize that you could have that response too. You can also approach this time of life with optimism. But if you're going to do that, you have to get hold of three things. First, you have to see what is praiseworthy. If you don't see what the psalmist sees, you're not going to have any reason to be optimistic. If you only see the brokenness of this world, it makes perfect sense to go dark. So if you want to live optimistically, you first have to see what is praiseworthy. Second, you have to praise what is praiseworthy. It sounds kind of obvious, but if you want to live optimistically, it's more than a simple mindset change. It means that you actually have to do something differently than what you were doing before. You have to call attention to what's praiseworthy. You have to praise what's praiseworthy. And third, you have to take part in what is praiseworthy. It's not enough to see it outside yourself. It's not enough to get excited by what you see. You also have to enter into what you see. You have to join in this larger, better, bigger world. You have to take part in what is praiseworthy. So you're going to have to see what is praiseworthy and have to praise what is praiseworthy. And you have to take part in what is praiseworthy. So first, you have to see what is praiseworthy. The psalmist is looking at the darkness and the misery of this world. He sees the injustice. He sees the impoverishment. He sees the alienation. And he sees two potential sources of help. One of those, he says, is a false hope. Very tempting to put your confidence there. It's a false hope. It's not dependable. The other one is. So what's this false hope? Well, you see that in verses 3 to 4. Psalmist says, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The false hope is in princes in these people who have power and influence in this world, people who can actually get things done in this world, people that you would be tempted to, to look to, to straighten out the mess of a broken world. And the psalmist says, don't. Don't do that. Now, you have to notice that there's a nuance here because he says, don't put your trust in them. He doesn't say, don't trust them. If he said, don't trust them, that would sound like he's suspicious. Like he thought there's something evil about leaders and government. The psalmist doesn't think that. The psalmist recognizes his leadership, the government that's been given to us by the Lord. He doesn't say, don't trust them because they're evil and they're just out to get you and, and they're just in it for themselves. You have to follow his logic here if you want to understand his nuance. He says something different. He says, don't put your trust in them. Don't put the full weight of your confidence in them. Not because they're evil, but because they're limited. They die. And when they die, their plans also die. They can't keep their plans going. And so they are unable to fundamentally alter the brokenness of this world. Why? The brokenness outlasts them. 
In fact, the brokenness overtakes them. The brokenness breaks them down too. They die. Don't rest your full weight on them. Not even when they line up with your own thoughts and beliefs about what is right in this world, because they're not going to be able to save you from the brokenness of this world. They can't even save themselves. On top of that, they have a limited perspective. They weren't around when the world was whole, when all of life was perfectly good. They don't know what a fully just, fully righteous, good world would be. They all agree that what we have now is not what it should be. But because they don't know what was, they don't know what to restore the world back to. That's why you have all these competing visions of what is right and what is best and what we should be doing. Let's think about it this way. When your car breaks down and you have to take it back to the shop, you want it brought back to its original condition so that it runs the way that it's supposed to. You don't want to talk to mechanics who have their own ideas about how it should have been built in the first place. You don't want them debating various things that they could try. You want them to know what they're doing, which means you want them to go to bring the car back to the way that it was designed in the first place. You want them to bring it back in line with that design. So you want them to have knowledge of how it should be, and you want them to have power to actually be able to restore it to that condition. No prince, no person of influence and power, no prince knows what this world should be restored back to. None of them have the power to do it if they did know it. Put your trust in them and you will not escape the darkness. You'll not live optimistically. I think that's very timely for us. We have our presidential election coming up this year. We've already been hearing, we're gonna to continue to hear many different ideas, many different promises of what's gonna save and rescue our society. What are you gonna do with all of those ideas? We have to listen to them. You have to evaluate them. You have to get involved. You have to go out and vote. You have to back someone. But please don't be fooled into thinking that any one of these princes or princesses are the answer of what's wrong with our world. They don't have the perspective, they don't have the power that deserves the full weight and confidence of your trust. What should you put your trust in instead? Well, you're gonna need someone who's not under the power of a broken world. Somebody who has an independent life source, somebody who's not threatened by the darkness of this world. And you need someone who knows what a fully restored world should be. You need someone with both knowledge and power. You need verse six. You need the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. God knows what this world should be since he made it, and he's worthy of your trust because he keeps faith forever. His relationship to what he made is still the same when he made it. He keeps faith with it. That means he keeps interacting with this world with the same intentions and the same goals that he had when he first made it. So when something is wrong with his creation, he gets involved to set it right. And that's what the psalmist sees. He sees God acting to undo what is broken. He sees God using his power to bring this world back in line with his original intention for it. He gives you a list of those things. Verse 7. God executes justice for the oppressed. He's not okay that there are people in his world who are oppressed, and so he acts to bring them justice. Verse 7, he gives food to the hungry. 
He's not okay that anybody made in his image is hungry in this world, and so he acts to feed them. Verse 7, he sets the prisoners free. He's not okay with people in his world who are unjustly jailed. He acts to liberate them. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. He's not okay with people who are not physically whole, and so he acts to bring them back to health. Verse 8, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. He's not okay that anybody experiences this life, this precious gift that he gave them, as something that's crushing, as something that's overwhelming, something that they just can't bear to go on with. And so he acts to relieve people of their burdens. He lifts them up out of their misery. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. He's not okay that some people are more at risk than others that they have less access to the basic necessities of life, that they're more vulnerable, that they can be so easily mistreated and have taken from them the little that they already have. It's not okay with that. And so what does he do? He watches over them. They get his special attention so that their lives can be just as full, just as meaningful as anybody else's. God designed a world of such goodness that no one in it should be oppressed no one should be hungry. No one should be imprisoned. No one should be blind, crushed, or marginalized. That's not the way that it was at the beginning, and God is not okay with leaving it that way. In other words, when God looks at a broken world, he doesn't shrug and say, I guess it's just broken. It's not really what I had in mind, but you know what? I'm okay. I'm not oppressed. I'm not hungry. I'm not crushed. doesn't really affect my quality of life. I'm not bothered enough by it to actually do anything about it. It's not what God says. Instead, there's this holy discontent inside of him with the way that things are. There's a restlessness. He's not okay with the brokenness. It bothers him. He can't just see it and then walk away from it. He has to do something about it to fix it. He's active. He's fully engaged. He's working to restore this world. Yes, he has his own timetable. Not every instance of injustice is set right in every person's lifetime. But God has a vision of what he wants this world to be, and he hates that it, the reality does not line up with his vision. And so God acts to correct it. He acts to bring it all back in line with that vision so that one day he will set everything right that's wrong. And it's going to be so complete that on that day, nobody's going to look at him and say, you left me out. I didn't get justice. I'm owed something for the way that I was mistreated. It's not going to happen. God will not allow one bit of injustice to enter into eternity. No one will ever charge him with being unfair or unjust. He'll bring perfect justice to his universe. That's what he's doing right now, doing everything necessary to restore this world into what he loves and what he longs for it to be. Don't put your trust in princes to do this. Mere human power cannot create the world that God loves. Put your trust in God. He's already restoring this world. He's going to keep restoring it until there is nothing left to restore. He keeps faith forever. You say, well, Bill, that, that sounds wonderful. But how do I know that? How do I know that he's actually committed to that restoration? He's so committed that he entered into this world himself. He became human. He was born to poverty-stricken parents. 
He experienced the brokenness, the heaviness, the injustice of this world firsthand. And he spent his ministry years wiping it out every single time that he saw it. And so he healed bodies that were broken. He fed stomachs that were hungry. He released people from demonic oppression. He stood up for those who were on the edges of society. And that was his plan from the beginning. That's why he came. At the very start of his ministry, he goes into a synagogue and he's handed the scroll of, of the book of Isaiah. And he reads from that scroll to everybody there the following words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to whom? To the captives, those imprisoned. Recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are what? Who are oppressed, to, pro to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he finished reading that, he told them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is why I'm here, to continue the restorative work that my father has been doing all along to bring justice to this broken world. That's who our God is. That's the heart of our God. That's what Jesus spent his life doing. It's what he's continuing to do until everything that's wrong with this world is set right again. So don't just look at what's wrong with this world. Look beyond the problems that you see. And look beyond until you see what God is doing. Do that. It'll change how you approach life. It'll change the way that you feel about life. I had the privilege of talking with a number of people this past week who were discouraged about what they were seeing in their lives. And in each case, it was because they saw the problems of their lives in a vacuum. They didn't see what God was actively doing, and so they felt hopeless and they went dark. But when we were able to see what God was up to, something really cool happened. They smiled. You think about that for a moment. You realize nothing in their lives was different except they saw something they hadn't seen before. They saw that they were not alone. They saw that God was at work doing what? Restoring their lives. And noticing that changed how they felt about life. It changed how they approached life. It's normal to feel overwhelmed by what you see inside yourself. It's normal to be overwhelmed by what you see outside of yourself. It's a really hard world to live in. It's easy to feel overwhelmed, but when you're overwhelmed, what does it mean? It means that what you're seeing are the problems. You're captured by the problems. You see them as more ultimate, more determinative in your life than you see what God is doing in you and in his world. The solution then is not to say, well, we'll just pretend those problems don't exist. It's not the solution. The solution is to see that even more ultimate, even more powerful is the Lord who is acting to set right everything that's wrong. And that part of setting right everything that is wrong involves restoring you also. That's number one. If you want to live optimistically, you have to learn to see what God is doing. You have to see what is praiseworthy. Second, however, it's not enough simply to see what God is doing. It's not enough to just sort of observe him at arm's length. You have to do more. You have to praise what you see. You have to praise him. You have to praise what is praiseworthy. And what do we mean by praise? Praise means that you say out loud what is truthful, what is accurate of God. It's to call attention to the good that God is. It's to call attention to the good that God is doing. It's to call attention to his passion to restore the universe so that it is what it should be. Effectively, what are you doing? You're saying, I see you. 
I see what you're doing, and I love it. I love it, so I call attention to it. I praise you. Now, I want to take a brief aside here and just sort of, why are we supposed to praise God? We, we, you see that throughout the scripture. You get calls to do that. Why is that important? You know, almost feels a little bit like, you know, is God insecure here? He just, he needs people to tell him how great he is, and, and if he doesn't get that enough, then he's going to be a little discouraged and, and, and won't work nearly as hard. Realize, no, that's, that's not it. We praise, not because he needs it, but because we do. Not because he needs it, but because we need it. Now, that sounds a little odd, so let me unpack it. There's a sense in which we cannot enjoy something fully without talking about it, without telling other people about how great it is and how they need to experience it themselves. Maybe you've had this experience. You, you just watched an incredible moment in sports when there were sports to watch. You, you, you watched this kickoff return that went all the way back for a touchdown. You saw the buzzer-beating three-point shot. You saw the infield double play that just boggled your mind. And what happened in that moment? You saw something that was so amazing, you couldn't keep it inside. And so you grabbed your phone and you texted a friend, or you called someone else to come in from the other room because they had to see this replay. You brought it up the next day at work. Why are you doing that? It's because you couldn't fully enjoy it on your own without sharing it. You had to talk about it. You had to praise it in order to fully enjoy it. Isn't that what you do when you find a great restaurant? You go out and you tell your friends, man, this restaurant was incredible. The food was so good. And you describe the food. Why are you doing that? You're reliving the enjoyment of it. You're in that moment that you're praising. You do the same thing when you see a really good movie or you read a really good book or you hear a song that you really like. You had a great vacation. You end up telling people about it and telling people how good it is. We don't fully enjoy something by keeping it to ourselves. We don't fully enjoy something unless we praise. It's part of the way that we're made. We have to express that greatness that we've seen in order to enjoy it. But we're actually doing more than simply enjoying it. We're also entering into that experience through praise. A number of years ago, my wife and I, Sally, went to one of our kids' high school track events. It was an invitational meet, which meant that a number of schools had brought their top athletes. And I remember this one event. My kids were not in it, but I still remember the 100-meter dash because we saw something special that night. If you're a track parent, you've watched lots of races, and after a while, you get a sense of what to expect. You get a sense of the rhythm, the pace of the event. That night, we saw something that was unexpected, unexpected at a high school event. 100-meter dash is fast. But this young man that ran that race was so fast, it literally looked like everybody else was standing still when he passed them. He didn't start out that way, but he built up into it. Very fast race, but he still built up into it, and he just exploded as he passed the stands where all of us were, and we all felt it. We knew that there was something that we had just seen that was amazing, and you could tell that it wasn't just one or two of us, but it was everybody because this audible ripple went through the crowd as he went past. People gasping, people making little utterances of, of amazement, people what? Some, some way of expressing the feeling, some way of praising what we had just seen. And I've never seen this before, but people then turned to each other, complete strangers, and started talking to each other about what we had just seen. 
Why are we doing that? We had to express this amazement to someone, to anybody, to praise what we had seen and to share that praise. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is very important because that young man didn't need our praise. He was already at the finish line. He already won the race. Our praise had nothing to do with him in that one sense. He didn't need our praise. Why did we do it? Because we needed it. We needed to express it, and by expressing it, we joined in with what he had done. We entered into that moment with him, and we entered into that moment as a community with each other. And if any one of us had held back, we would not have experienced it fully. It became a shared experience with him and with each other. That's why you need to praise the Lord. And that's why you have to work to praise the Lord. The psalmist begins and ends this song by saying, praise the Lord. It's a declaration. What is he saying? He's saying, man, God is just incredible. He's so great. It's a declaration, but it's more than a declaration. It's a command. It's an imperative. And the person that the psalmist is commanding is himself. Verse 1, praise the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. He's telling himself what to do. He's urging himself to do what he needs to do in order to enjoy this amazing God and in order to enter into this experience of what God is doing. I think this is also timely for us. It's hard at any time in a broken world to make yourself praise the Lord. It's harder when you're by yourself, which makes it really hard on a Sunday morning, like right now. Because even if you're with your housemates, you're in a much smaller group than you normally are with and, and a much smaller group than you're normally used to praising with. You're also home. It means you probably didn't get dressed up today, if you got dressed up at all. You're staring at a screen. You've probably had way too much screen time this week already. You associate home and screens and not getting dressed up with what? With being entertained, not with praise. And so it's really easy right now to sit back and become passive, to not expect to participate, or worse, to have this implicit expectation that you would be entertained. And frankly, we're not all that entertaining. At least we're not as entertaining as what you normally watch. We're not even as entertaining as what other churches are streaming. And so it'd be very easy to look at the screen and think to yourself, man, this feels slow. I wish that they would just pre-record this so I could skip forward to the sermon or to the parts that I want. Or, or you know what? I, I probably could just wander around right now and, and look for another sermon out there that's better and, and go listen to that. Now, please hear this. We're not trying to create complex videos that will entertain you. We're not trying to craft sermons for which there are no equals. Our goal is not to be boring. It's not our goal. We're not trying to be boring, but we're also not trying to be entertaining. What are we trying to do? We're trying to create an opportunity for you to participate in praise, for you to worship, for you to enter into who this God is with your church family. That's our goal right now. And that means that you're going to have to do what the psalmist does. You're going to have to urge your soul along. You're going to have to tell yourself, praise the Lord, oh my soul. You're going to have to grab your soul and say, come on, soul, get with it. We need to say out loud what we see about God. 
That means you can't sit back right now hoping for some experience to just sort of wash over you. It's not going to happen. You have to work to enter into it. You have to get yourself ready to praise. You have to get your household ready to praise. Not easy when you have little kids. Been there, I get that. I'm going to share a little secret that you really don't want to hear. It's not easy when you have big kids. And so what are you going to have to do? You might have to get your household ready the night before. You might have to come together and remind yourself, tomorrow's our opportunity to praise, and we have to be there. We have to be ready to enter in. You might need to pray together so that you would have the strength to want to enter in. Probably going to need to come before the stream starts to take a moment to reorient your heart to what we're actually doing here. Don't bring your breakfast with you, hoping the praise will rub off on you as you sit there munching along. In fact, you should not be sitting at all, at least not during the praise time. You would not be sitting there if we were all meeting together. Don't let yourself sit there in your family room. Sing the words. Don't sit there passively watching someone else sing. Focus on what you're singing. Make yourself think about the words. We don't praise because it's just this you know, cool religious thing that people do who like to sing. Praise is not singing. It's not for people who like singing. Praise is for people who are desperate to connect with God, who want to know what it is to enjoy him, who want to know what it is to experience him. And so we praise because there's real content to what we're singing because who we're singing to is real, and he's really involved in restoring this world. Make yourself think about what you're saying. Let me be even more pointed. Some of you are bored with God. Some of you are bored with worship. It's not, however, because God is boring. A God who works to bring justice to every square inch of this broken universe is anything but boring. If you're bored with God, it might have more to do with how you're praising than with the one that you're directing those praises to. If you skip lightly over praising him, you will miss out on enjoying him and you'll miss out on experiencing him. If you want to live optimistically in this world, first, you have to see what is praiseworthy. Second, you have to praise what is praiseworthy. And then third, you have to take part in what is praiseworthy. In the middle of the list of all of the things that God is doing to restore this world is an odd phrase in verse 8. Almost sounds like a non sequitur, like something that doesn't follow logically from what God has been saying. Let me go back through that list for you real quickly. We're hearing that the Lord executes justice. He feeds hungry people. He sets prisoners free. He heals people. He opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, and loves the righteous. Think, loves the righteous. What's that got to do with the rest of that list? It's nice to know that he loves the righteous, but how does that fit in here? It fits because the righteous person is someone who's already doing all of these other things that God himself is doing. Alec Motyer, he's a Bible scholar, defines the word righteous this way. The righteous are those who are right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. They're right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. A righteous person then is someone who acts to set right 
what is wrong. Scripture is filled with this idea. Let me give you just one example. This is out of the book of Job, chapter 29. Job describes the kinds of things here that a righteous person does when they encounter things that are wrong in the world. Speaking of himself, he says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who is dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That's what a righteous person is like. They are actively doing all of the same things that you just heard that God is doing and has been doing. Righteous people are making sure that justice takes place for people who are weak and vulnerable, people who can't make justice happen for themselves. That's why saying that God loves the righteous makes sense here. It's because the righteous person does what God himself does, so that what bothers God bothers them. God loves them because they love what he loves, a world that's restored back to what it should be. In other words, it's not enough to see what God is doing. It's not even enough to get excited about what he's doing and call attention to it. You actually have to join him in what he's doing. A broken world has to bother you like it bothers God. Bothers you to the point where you do something about it. If it doesn't, if you're not responding to this world the way that God does, then you're not on the same page as he is. If you're okay with seeing people who are hungry, people who are mistreated, people who are unable to access the same kind of things that you already enjoy, if you can see people in those conditions and not feel moved inside to want to do something for them, you're not righteous. You don't feel the same kind of things that God feels. You're missing something important about the heart of God. And frankly, you're missing something important about who you are. Because all of those things that are true of a broken physical world are also true of a broken spiritual world. You have been oppressed. Sin and evil have imprisoned you and to such a degree that you could not set yourself free by yourself. You've only been able to see yourself in God truly when he's opened your spiritual eyes, when he's given them sight so that you could see the world the way that it really is. You're only going to stop living crushed under the burden of your guilt if God takes it from you, if he lifts you up, and if he keeps watching over you. The only way that you can be restored spiritually is if God is not okay with your brokenness, if he acts to free you from it. And when he does that, you know there's no difference between you and any other image of God on the planet. And so when you see someone else in need, it reminds you of your own need. And it reminds you that you're no longer in need, that God has moved himself on your behalf. And you re-experience the goodness in that moment of this restoring God and the goodness of his vision for this world. And you are not okay with anything less than this person getting that as well. That's the answer to why God doesn't fix everything that's broken right now. He chooses to do so over time through his people. He chooses to do so through you, through the righteous. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed. And he said to God, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Think about that. 
I accomplished the work you gave me to do. I accomplished it. I did it all. Everything that you gave me to do, I did. And you think, wait, Jesus, what, what do you mean you did it all? There are still sick and crippled people in Israel. We read about them in the book of Acts. Surely that means then that there were also others out there who were blind, lepers who were still suffering, still cut off from their communities, people who were still oppressed, physically, socially, spiritually, people that you didn't get to. Jesus, what do you mean? You, you, you did everything. Who's going to help the rest of these people? And as Jesus keeps praying, you discover that God's plan involves not simply God restoring this world, but giving his people the privilege of joining him in that restoration work. So a little bit later in that prayer, Jesus says, verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they, his disciples, they are in the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Why? Because verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sent Jesus into the world to do the work of restoration that he himself was doing. Jesus now gives you the same charge. You're to be one of the righteous that God loves, one of those who will do what God loves. What's that going to look like? Well, it's going to be different for each one of you. Some of you are going to be moved to relieve hunger. That's what's really going to bother you, that people on this abundant earth can't get enough to eat. Others of you will volunteer in after-school programs because you can't stand the thought that some children start so much further behind than you did or than your children do. Some of you will adopt unwanted children because no one made in the image of God is ever unwanted by God. And every one of us ought to know that we are wanted and have that taste of what it means to be special and important. Some of you are going to be led to protest. You'll protest against police departments that respond more quickly and better to some people than they do to others. Because you're going to recognize that being an image of God means that we all have the same worth and value regardless of our income or the color of our skin and therefore ought to have the same access to justice. Some of you will speak out on behalf of the unborn arguably the most vulnerable at-risk population that you can imagine. Others of you will give your lives to cure disease, to alleviate suffering in any form that you find it. In other words, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach to being righteous. What you do is going to be a unique mesh of your gifts and your passions along with the needs that you see in front of you. What is not unique is that you will find across the board, that every one of God's people do this, that every one of God's people act in some way to use their talents and their resources to restore goodness and justice to this world. That's what we want Renewal Mainline to be. That we would be a church full of people who are not sitting back, who are not passive, not even in a lockdown, just waiting for someone else to come along and fix the brokenness of this world. Instead, that we would be a church where every one of us feels something stirring inside, that longing to do something about the brokenness that you see, the brokenness that would have crushed you, not just in this life, but for all eternity, if Jesus had not rescued you from it. And he did. Because he is the true righteous one that God loves. 
Jesus, he's the one who came to preach good news to the poor by first becoming poor, losing all the riches that he had in the process, including his own life. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners by being arrested and being a prisoner himself. Jesus gave sight to the blind, then closed his eyes in death. Jesus set the oppressed free by suffering the injustice, the indignity of dying as a criminal, despite never having done a single thing that was wrong. But Jesus also the one who proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. He rose from the dead never to die again so that he would keep faith with you forever. This Jesus came to restore you. He came to set you free from death and sin so that what? So that you would enter into this restoration work with him. That's worth seeing. It's really worth praising. It's worth giving everything in your life just for the chance to be part of it. Let's pray. Lord God, you've given us incredibly meaningful, incredibly important, very high bar opportunities. Lord, empower us. Lord, let us enter into seeing you, energize our spirits as we praise you so that we would embrace what you're doing and we would embrace our place with you. We would be delighted to take our place alongside of you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.